Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast that dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name is Sean Ramkunis. Although we have a different co-host today, we have our friend Mary Haddix. And of course, I'm still here, but we're going to be interviewing my friend Hunter in a little bit. But Mary and I believe that there are many people that have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. What does that mean? We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, dot, 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 and everything in between. Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Mary Haddix, and I'm so happy to be here with Sean. Uh, Here's the quote of the day. Um, Analysis did me a lot of good. I think that self-confrontation is a good thing, whether you do it by yourself in solitude or whether you do it in the presence of another person by Joni Mitchell. Today, we are talking to uh, Sean's co-host, Hunter Sagona, about performance anxiety and how it can affect performing and teaching. Here we go. All right. Hello, friends. You are here with my friend Hunter and my friend Mary, but they have swapped roles today. They are playing, okay, they're playing the, <laughs> the role of the co-host and the guest, Hunter the guest, Mary the co-host hey, for today. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for being here. We do have a lot to talk about with Hunter today because we're going to talk about performance anxiety, which Absolutely. I know is kind of a big deal. Um, and first of all, our first topic we're going to get into is performance anxiety in performing. So Hunter, I hope you have your hot seat ready. I hope you have your oh, yes. microphone ready for us to take charge of what you're going to talk about. So here's our first question. Um, in what forms does anxiety come to you? Let me ask you that first. Um, in what forms does it come to me? Well, I mean, you know, usually it's the, I, I think anxiety is the one of those emotions that, you know, like you said, it manifests different for people, which is I'm sure why you're doing, you know, this line of questioning is to figure out how it manifests, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's more like, you know, that pit in your stomach that, you know, it just, it starts to spread outwards and you feel it encroaching mm -hmm. on the rest of your body. Yeah. Um, for mm -hmm. me, I happen to have Tourette syndrome. And when I get very nervous, um, the physical tics that are associated with the, with the illness is, um, more present. So they start to come out and I might not even notice them. So like I do a lot of eye blinking or I don't know, like something with my jaw or whatever. When I was younger, I made like a little more vocal noises in like my throat and stuff, but then it will still, and you sort of not, not age out of it, but your body sort of compensates as you get older. Mm -hmm. So for me, when stress, anxiety, those things bring it back to the forefront and those physical tics manifest more. Right. So, f and, but like I said, sometimes I don't even realize it. Right. You know, it's interesting. I did notice that when Sfi came around. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a great interview. Um, I'm yeah, going to pass the next one over to Mary. So Mary, take it away. Uh, whether you're playing or conducting, where do you find that anxiety affects you the most? Like in the concert uh, performance or in the rehearsal process, in your individual practice? Um, where are you most susceptible, you think? 
Um, I definitely think it's the performance where the, the nerves I feel are most present. Um, you know, and obviously you've been working at something, you've been practicing it, you know, whether it's music or art uh, or sports or whatever it is, obviously you practice for a great deal of time to eventually show off what you've been rehearsing. So ideally you should be more comfortable with it, but at the same time, the stakes are raised, you know, it, it's quote unquote real then. So for me, I think it's during the performance. And would you, do you think that for you that level of anxiety changes based on whether or not you're performing in an ensemble or solo? Yes, I do. I think uh, the old adage, strength in numbers, is a, it definitely rings true in the music world, at least for me. I think there's something much more nerve wracking about performing a solo. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would agree uh, that when it's just you and the eyes are on you, even if you're maybe with some, you know, people are backing you up, it's still you and nothing but you. So solos, I think, are the most nerve wracking. And I mean, that's not like a, a life shattering concept. But when you're with an ensemble, I think the concept of, you know, you are all supposedly on equal playing field and you are all working in a small setting to perform this piece. Everyone has their role to play and only by the strength of the group can you all uh, succeed. And I think that does in some way lower the, the in our education terms, it lowers the affective filter, which is the environment, the, uh, the anxiety in the environment, comfortability. Um, I'm, I'm sure you both have, have heard that talked about. Um, and in a larger group, like an, on, an orchestra or a, a concert band, I think now that's down even more because the eyes are not just on you, you are part of the group. Yeah, someone might have a solo or there are solely here and there, but for the most part, the audience sees you as an entity rather than a collection of people. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree on that front. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I think we talked about this yesterday, Hunter, with Bernstein Mass, and I feel like some people are going to be like, you know what? They didn't actually take a break. They just stopped between the two parts. <laughs> you know, that's sort of a joke that we're kind of running through yesterday but that moment in epiphany yesterday with the oboe mm -hmm. part you know feeling so vulnerable and so susceptible to just kind of being in a moment of that um what what is something that you wish people knew about performance anxiety and how has that impacted your own perception of music um well you know i think that most people assume, and my, and my parents are guilty of this all the time, even though, you know, we, we try to tell them it's not true. Mm -hmm. What I was saying before about how, you know, someone who works towards something and then they have to perform it, whether that be music or they always talk about it in terms of like athletes. Mm -hmm. um, when someone say perform something and either they mess up, right? Or they make a small error that's noticeable, but they keep going, whatever. And they're always like, well, how could they do that? They've been working for it. They've been practicing it, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, but anxiety is a very real thing. Or uh, the difficulty of the task at hand is a very real thing. And people need to understand that 
mm -hmm. uh, error or even you know slight mishap is a part of the process because obviously we're not machines, we're not perfect, mm -hmm. and it makes the flawless performances that much more impressive when you know that the average performer even the above average performer is probably going to make a mistake. Will the audience know that? Maybe not, but you know, they're nervous there. It, it might get to them in the moment or they feel that you can feel it in your fingers as you're playing, you know, you're maybe just a note ahead of your mind and you stumble for a moment and then keep going. And like I said, they may not notice in the audience, but you'll, you know, you'll have that one critic out there who's like, well, actually I noticed that. <laughs> and you're like, we caught that. And, I think that's the biggest thing people have to realize is that just because someone say makes a mistake doesn't necessarily mean they don't know what they're doing or they're uh, like not a good player. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Um, thank you for stealing my thesis, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah. No, you're good. <laughs> um, we're going to get to the next question. Uh, take it away, Mary. Sorry. Uh, so uh, tell us about the earliest moment that you can remember feeling a form of stage fright, whether it be uh, in front of your family at Christmas dinner or uh, <laughs> anything in between. Are we speaking from experience there, Mary? Uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can remember back to you know, um, elementary school, you know, we had, I was obviously, you know, like Sean in band in elementary school. And even before that you do, or in elementary school, you do choir and you have to do that. And I can remember something as little as, you know, you're in general music. And I don't know when this, I couldn't tell you a date or a year or anything, but it was like early elementary school music class and odd given my my career of choice now but you know she's playing the teacher's playing the piano and she's like okay guys uh you guys are gonna sing this and you know guys will sing this girls will sing that blah blah and i can remember you know we had a very stoic class and no one really wanted to do anything and you had the one or two kids who participated and i remember thinking like i really didn't and it wasn't like a peer pressure thing but I didn't want to sing in front of everyone else. And I remember having a problem remembering the lyrics to the song. Um, like I could sing it with them or with the teacher, sort of to myself. But then when I went to sing it out loud, I couldn't remember. So I wasn't going to fumble over. So I just didn't say anything. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's because it was in a group. Pardon, what'd you say? I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was something silly. It was like camp. <laughs> town races or something you know some small song and you know it it wasn't like a really impactful moment but then when you pick up an instrument uh i think some people are either dissuaded or encouraged by how comfortable they feel having others hear them you know being noticed by other people can be a very nerve-wracking experience uh but i mean when you're you know with other people who have the same instrument i think that adds to the the comfort of the environment so i didn't have that same fear when i was in like fourth grade band so the the general music thing's probably my earliest memory all right well i i'd like to uh, actually ask the next one um as well because i remember something from earlier that uh made me wonder so 
Um, at one point you had mentioned that you think that anxiety comes to you more in like the physical forms than maybe mental blockages. Mm -hmm. And so could you, uh, do you feel like um, physical or mental strategies help you better when combating that? I, uh, does a physical solution make? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question because I, for the majority of my life, knowing that I was going to have these physical manifestations of anxiety or stress, never really thought about much how to handle it, it which sounds like a weird, it sounds like, a, you know, like totally counterproductive, like oh, I'll just ignore it. But that's sort of what I did. I mean, I, I don't want to say I ignored it, but there was always the sense that like, the anxiety was never going to get me anywhere and therefore I shouldn't pay it any mind yes. as I got, as I got older. And so I get to, you know, you get to fourth grade, fifth grade, uh, middle school and yeah, it, it happens and you know, it's there because for me, those physical manifestations start happening. But at the same time, you're sort of like, okay, I'm the boulder rolling down the hill. I can't stop. So you sort of just start running next to it. I mean, it's, was that, was that like well, a I was going to ask a follow-up actually. Oh yeah, go ahead. So uh, have you ever tried to like T-pose or uh, Superman pose before a performance? I guess I'm thinking of like a specifically physically, uh, physical thing that should induce, uh, you know. A sense of calm. De-escalation, yes. Uh, and so I'm wondering maybe if you've tried them, um, because it to me it sounds like your your mental game is like, uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm just wondering yeah. I'm trying to envision like a, a young hunter that like Superman poses behind uh, a stage before, but you know the only thing I can think of is and this was not till I got a little bit older, um, I'm gonna say maybe high school yeah it must have been high school, which obviously leaves out a great deal of time probably. Prior to that, when to be honest, I really don't know what I would have done other than maybe take a take a deep breath and sort of go for it. Um, but when I got to high school, I remember the school psychologist, uh, the school psychologist, because the the way our uh, high school is set up, that set up in the houses, we had A, B, and C, and uh, each uh, house had a psychologist. And uh, the psychologist who was in charge of managing my uh, five hundred four, which was four Tourette's had said that there was a trick where if you take your hand and you pinch the two sides of your hand, um, it's supposed to induce a sense of calm. Now, it could be something psychological about that, that you're just focused on this instead of whatever you're doing. But ever since then, I found myself either consciously or subconsciously both doing that in nervous situations. And oddly, I find it does help. Sorry, I was waiting for the... <laughs> No, that's okay, yeah. I can imagine. Uh, I guess yoga just came up in my brain because mm -hmm. it seems like uh, a lot of yeah, people go something. there. But uh, Sean, do you want to take the last one then? Sure, I'll take the last one. Uh, this is Mary's question, but I'm happy to read it for her, which is, have you experienced anything new or recurring concerning performance anxiety during the pandemic? 
Um, have I experienced anything new since the pandemic? That's a, uh, I'm trying to think. The, the, the band that I do, the, the community band that I do most of my performances with actually was off for most of the pandemic. So I didn't get a chance to um, perform really at all during the pandemic. However, now that we're slowly coming out of it, you know, we were getting back into rehearsals and, um, you know, I, I don't conduct every song in that. I'm the assistant conductor for that. So I do like, you know, if we have a performance of like 12 songs, I do maybe one or two, you know. Mm. But that was a weird experience to get back up there and start sort of, you know, getting back in front of people and saying, okay, you know, here we go with these charts that we haven't looked at in a while. And not that it was difficult because I feel like people fell back into the swing of things pretty quickly, but mm. I did find myself up there saying like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta now, you know, I gotta look at the score. I gotta, you know, be, this sounds like a stupid thing, but like, I gotta be conscious of flipping the pages and, you know, no, like, I do too when I conduct. It's like the hardest right. thing <laughs> just to continue to remember. Right, it's a weird, right, you wouldn't think you Exactly. You have to think about that, but yeah, you're like, okay, next measure, next measure. Because, you know, you start to become familiar with the song and, you know, you're listening to it sometimes more than you're actually reading it, even though you're supposed to be conscious of what's on the page. Um, it so should now, all now be you're, in here. Right, it should all be in here. Yeah. But then, of course, people are like, well, weren't you following along? Do you not see mm -hmm. we have this part here? Um, <laughs> and so I, that's where I find myself like, oh, I'm out of practice with this. I have mm -hmm. to get back into it. And, you know, for me, you know, we're, we're the three of us, you know, we're all the same age, you know, young people. And in this community band, the, I'd say the average age of the band is probably like, I don't know, 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. So the people playing are those who've been doing it far longer than I have. And, you know, you're up there and you're, you're trying to seem like, you know, what you're doing, but it can be a little nerve wracking. So sometimes, you know, that it sounds you know silly, but the palm thing, you know, pinch, pinching the two sides of your palm, I find myself doing that there unconsciously too. But, you know, as you get into it, you feel less and less stress while you're doing it. And then the next time you come back to it, that stress starts back up at the beginning and then slowly works its way down each time you do it. So I find that the, the stress of it doesn't ever really go away, but maybe works itself out faster. Right. And what about the stress of doing this podcast? I don't, I don't have a great deal of stress <laughs> with it, you know, to be honest. You would think, right, because it's like, you know, sometimes new people, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> Two thanks. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, no. I mean, it's, so, and it, for me, you know, like meeting new people, you know, I don't find that stressful. And I don't know if that's because the nature of my job has to do with constant talking to people. And therefore you have to learn about people like very fast. Like I'm sure, you know, cause we've all done sort of some sort of teaching experience, whether it's in the private sector, public sector or um, collegiate experience. Um, you know, you have to meet someone learn about them in a very fast amount of time and sort of use that to inform your interaction. So I don't want to I don't want to say you don't have time to be stressed about it because there's always time to be stressed about anything, but I don't know. I, I find it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Sure. I definitely feel stressed when there's a new guest on, especially Kevin McKee. Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of stress. Yes. But that is a okay. My friend, you know how much I was definitely nerding out about him, but 
Hunter, it's a Rightly perfect so. time. That's right. It is a perfect time for us to take a break, sponsored by our friends at Anchor. Uh, I know you know this, and I know that you're tired of hearing this, but we are on Twitter. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and as Hunter says, and the YouTube. On Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. <laughs> on Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are Music Speaks Podcast at Music Speaks underscore podcast for TikTok and Music Speaks Podcast for the YouTube. And uh, we will be right back and talking to Hunter about some performance anxiety during teaching. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Music Speaks Podcast. We are here with uh, my co-host tonight, uh, Sean Rimkunas, and my name is Mary Haddix, and we have Hunter Sagona with us, and we are talking about performance anxiety. Earlier, you got to hear his thoughts on uh, when he is on the stage, and now we're going to talk a little bit about the anxiety that may or may not come with teaching. So the first question that we have for you is, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we consider how... Uh, being a musician is one thing, but teaching is uh, somehow inherently different. So um, how does anxiety change when you step in front of a classroom or does it? Um, I think, you know, the, when you're teaching, the, the difference between say performance and uh, you know, musical performance and teaching is that when you are the teacher, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The expectation is that the attention will be on you. It isn't always, but the expectation is that it will be there. And therefore, you know, you are always expecting that people are going, and by which I mean students, are gonna be looking at you. Mm -hmm. And that can be very, uh, it can be very frightening uh, in terms of, you know, they expect that you know what you're doing, that you have the answers, that you can maintain control. And so when you're performing on stage uh, in terms of you know, with music, um, you might be able to rely, I mean, unless it's a solo performance, you might be able to rely on your section mates, on the conductor, who in, in this analogy, I guess, would be the, the teacher figure and the other sections. So it, it, it's like the, the tension is dispersed throughout the whole the whole group. That makes sense. All right. Sean, do you want to ask the next question? I will take the next question. And Hunter, you know how I like playing devil's advocate on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, what is something that is easy to do when teaching, but anxiety makes it that much harder? Um, something that anxiety makes much harder to do in teaching that's easy. Uh, honestly, and this is going to sound like the silliest thing, <laughs> but simply talking to the students. Talking. Like students. having a having a, a normal conversation with them makes it very difficult because, uh, or, or can make it very difficult because we have conversations all the time. It's not like a, a difficult thing to do unless you have a particular problem with that. But, you know, uh, hello, how are you? What's going on? What have you been doing? That kind of 
basic conversation suddenly becomes very different when you're talking to a student or, or a group of students because there's this sense or there can be this sense of disconnect depending on how if you know how well you know the students or not so if you start a conversation that they don't reciprocate well you can't just end the conversation you you sort of have to either try to keep it going or divert it somewhere else mm -hmm. without looking foolish and that is very stressful right and you also want to sound smart when you're talking, Correct. you don't want to sound dumb. So I, I, I do applaud you. Yes. That, and that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that, mm -hmm. that does make uh, a tougher job for a, a student. And Mary, if you don't mind me taking the next question, because I think it sort of relates, oh, it, which is, does anxiety make a teacher better or worse? Um, I think that it's much like any other field where in order to perform at your highest level, you have to have some sort of, uh, I don't want to say fear or anxiety, but I guess, yes, a certain level of fear helps one push themselves a little bit more because that's like that survival instinct. Mm -hmm. um, and it shouldn't be a lot, but I, I think that a certain level of like, Am I on my game? Do I know what I'm talking about? If the admin were to walk in right now, what would they think of my lesson? You know what I mean? There's always that lingering sense of like, what would somebody else think of what I'm doing at this very moment mm -hmm. if they were in my position or watching me? Mm -hmm. So that I think will keep people, you know, that keeps them performing at their their highest game. So it, a li it is a little bit necessary, but obviously if you are riddled with anxiety or it overtakes you, I mean, you become sort of like a, a, a babbling fool up there, just sort of <laughs> trying to get a sentence out, trying to get people to participate, and it becomes very ineffective. Right, yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And I think there just has to be a level of, of comfortability or mm -hmm. level of feeling comfortable and then a level of not feeling comfortable with something because that then gives you a bridge to to where you'll understand where you actually understand the material or you understand what you're actually saying to the kids too. So I think it's very important. Right. And I think yeah. Mary has a question about that. So Mary, take it. Away. Yeah, I was going to say, um, so for me, there are certain things that I know for a fact that um, make me a little bit more nervous to talk about in front of students. Um, or just uh, just some topics that maybe I just don't have enough experience with yet, I guess. But um, are there any subjects that you can teach um, without feeling any anxiety? And other than c comfort level, maybe since you just touched on that, um, or you could expand, does this include uh, like preparation or um, just your uh, general anxiety management? Um. I find when, uh, like, okay, so looking at my two fields in particular, let's say we're teaching about music, right? And I have to teach uh, maybe, say, music theory, right? And music theory, obviously, you know, I was taught it. I had to, you know, go through the hoops. You know, we all, we all learned about it. But I, I see myself more as a music historian than a music theorist and therefore the academic side of the of writing music i find myself to be not the authority on so when i have to teach about it 
I know that I myself am pushing myself to seem like I am the most comfortable with it. Yeah, you know, you're probably going to be teaching the basics like chord structure and, um, you know, chord progressions and the scales of the uh, scales on the staff, the various staves. And that stuff's all pretty basic. But if you're trying to teach it to, say, someone, you know, let's say you're teaching it to like a, a freshman general music class, that can be a little off-putting because, you know, they might not have the same experience that you do. People who are musicians from childhood have a level of comfortability with those things that if you try to teach them it later, they might be able to relate to it. Whereas people who have very little musical experience and you're trying to teach them from scratch, that can be very intimidating because you use terms that to you seem so basic, but they have no concept of it whatsoever. Even just saying a staff, they have no clue what a staff is whatsoever. You try to talk to them about the note. What is a note? And you try to talk about how, you know, it is a particular sound wave that is a sign, you know, it's a pitch. Or if you're talking about, you know, what is rhythm, right? A series of beats, simple things that we teach to little kids that when you try to teach them at an older level to people who don't have that experience, that can become very unsettling for me personally. Um, if I'm thinking about Italian, you know, if I'm talking about like, I find it very easy to talk about uh, grammar. I find talking about it very easy, but I know for a fact that 90% of the people who are in front of me do not want to hear it. And when you know That's that they are, when you know that they are not going to be receptive to the topic. I absolutely that, agree. <laughs> right. I mean, and it, and it goes for every subject in the world and you know, because there's always going to be a topic that you know that the minute you say it, people are going to be like, Oh, and it just, it does, it's, it, you got to try to grab the bull by the horns and say, no, 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 you must listen. You must. But, uh, <laughs> Do you find uh, do you find there to be a similar topic that came to your head? Oh, for me, um, I think yeah. that. Uh, well, I, I guess what made me ask it in the first place was um, in a communications class that I took as an undergrad. We had to do like improvised speeches as a grade, like three times oh. during the semester. Um, and it quite literally was like, roll the dice. Um, and then uh, like pick something out of a bucket to get like the two words that would make your topic. Oh, quite dear. literally that. And um, it's like playing Russian roulette. Yeah. And so for me, um, I think that there are some things that I could absolutely like improvise on and, and feel less anxiety than I would than when it comes to subbing in a seventh grade classroom or something like that. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't mean that other than the fact that, um, I mean, I, I've taught like classes of like 85 in middle school. So like it, there is experience behind that and I still mm -hmm. do feel that way. <laughs> but um, it's just interesting to see what people think affects their levels of anxiety when it uh, has to do with something they they do or uh, rather than something that happens to them. Mm -hmm. So definitely. And you know what, looking at the, the back half of your question, which is, you know, what do you think affects this preparation comfort level that you know that I think if you can preface your 
I think what annoys kids most, which makes them resistant is when you, or they, they think that you as the teacher believe in the end all be allness of the, the, whatever it is that you're teaching. And so if you can, let's say we're teaching, I don't know, it's a grammar, right? If, if we're teaching the subjunctive uh, tense in a language, if you can preface your teaching to the kids that like you, like I understand that this is going to be dry for you. Like I get it. I totally know where you're coming from, but it, it, you, you have to, you have to understand it. And you know, X, Y, and Z can't happen until you do. It won't make sense. Blah, blah, blah. They become a little more receptive. I mean, they're still going to probably dislike it, but if they understand that you understand their frustration about it, then they it becomes less about you because then they start directing like, oh, you're the boring one. You're the, you know, you're the one that we don't want to have to listen to. It becomes less about you, more about the subject. And you can have like a mutual joke about why this might be so dull. But at the same time, you're teaching it. They have to learn it. They know that they're going to have to use it in the grand scheme of things. So I feel like that can help reduce that anxiety level. Yeah, I agree with that. So um, moving on to the last question in the section, and then we'll get to talking about some clarinet. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you talked for a moment about um, like uh, <laughs> your seventh grader or uh, teaching Italian to like people who absolutely do not want to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, so in a situation like that, then how do you go about maintaining a uh, positive relationship and open atmosphere with your students when um, you're combating your own forms of anxiety on a subject or in a situation? Um, I, I think it, it comes down to the answer to the previous or the, the my, my addition to the previous question, which was that there has to be a mutual understanding between you and the students in the sense that we've all had those teachers who believe that the, te the that the stuff that they're teaching is the end all be all. Like I'm sure we've all, you know, you had maybe a, a history teacher or a science teacher or an English teacher who holds up, you know, a book and is like, this is God, you know, and <laughs> they're like, you must find this book fascinating. And you're like, but I don't. Um, <laughs> Or you're, you know, you're sitting in like a, a math class and they're trying to teach you calculus and in, you're in the back of your head the whole time you're just saying, I will never use this in my life. Why am I learning this? And they're trying to prove to you as to why this subject is necessary. And it gives them this sense of, I don't want to say false authority, but it gives them the sense of like, I don't even know how to say this without sounding derogatory to my own, my own field of, of study, but we are not the most important things in the world in terms of like, will you survive without learning Italian? Yes. Will you survive without learning how to play an instrument? Yeah, probably. I hate to say it because that's, you know, our fields here, but yes, you will survive. And the understanding that you recognize that they as students have a gazillion other classes who to be honest are probably higher on their list of priorities compared to yours 
I think garners you some favor with the students. And when they recognize that you recognize that you might not be the most important thing in their life, but you still care enough to ask them about you know their other classes or you know try to see that they're on top of their work in other classes and if they are you can give attention to your own subject then that builds that positive relationship with them and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be like you know the kindest or uh you know most uh, probing person in the world but even simple things like you know i always let them say you know i always ask them what's going on and i let them say whatever comes to their mind and then you, you ask one or two questions about that. It prompts them. They have a little bit of a conversation and then they move on with their work. But then the next time they come in the room, there's a sense of like, okay, you asked a question and you cared enough to listen to the conversation. So now they have maybe a little bit more of a, um, I don't want to say respect, but you know, I'll say that for lack of a better word, a little bit more of a respect for you as a teacher, which might make them more inclined to pay more attention to you in the classroom. You know what I mean? And that now the anxiety level goes way down because you're not so worried that that student is going to judge you or cause you a problem while you're trying to deal with, you know, the 64 other things that you're trying to do. So if the class as a whole can agree to be respectful to the teacher, to each other, to the material, then that becomes a much easier environment. Well, Hunter, it's been uh, a pleasure talking to you about like anxiety through a teacher's eyes. Um, I don't have as much experience as you in front of the classroom, uh, and uh, I only teach the one subject. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure that comes with plenty of anxiety. <laughs> well, uh, to each their own, I suppose. But um, it, it has been a pleasure. So um, Sean tells me that we have a clarinet quiz set up for you tonight, which oh. sounds like a great deal of fun. Yes. That is absolutely right. And Hunter, before we get to the quiz, I have to read this. I am so obligated to read this. We're going to take another break sponsored by our friends at Anchor. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search social music search music speaks podcast to find out ways to reach out to us and you will find our social media in ways that you can contribute to this podcast so we'll take a quick break and hunter get your game shoes ready to play some clarinet ball here we go all right all right we are back with my friend author writer and my friend hunter sagona teacher and uh, Hunter's like, writer? Yeah, you write for this show, buddy. So, uh, that's true. Okay. I suppose so. So, Hunter, are you ready for this quiz? Are you full of performance anxiety? No, I'm kidding. I am at this moment. <laughs> at this moment, you are. And let's get away with the first question. And we did do this a few days ago with another friend who said that this quiz was terrible. So I thought this would be a perfect time to ask you these same questions. So off we go. Here's the question. How many parts does the clarinet have, counting the reed and the ligature? Is it two, three, seven, or four? Counting the ligature and the reed as two separate ones? Yes. Then that would be seven. That is correct. All right, Mary, take away for the next question. 
In what clef does the clarinet read? I'll say that one more time. In what clef does the clarinet oh, read? Oh, in what clef? Okay, treble clef. Good. <laughs> I, I, dude, I was not even sure what I thought you said, but I was like, <laughs> it, it sounded like German. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I'll take that as a compliment for now. <laughs> you got a little bit of a German inflection. That's okay. <laughs> Um, which note do you play open, Hunter? Is it A, B, D, or G? Open is G. That is correct. Take it away, Mary. What does the register key do? Ah, uh, open-ended question. The register key, uh, it raises uh, the... It actually doesn't, in, in a lot of instruments, it raises the octave, but on the clarinet, it does not raise the instrument, uh, it does not raise the note up an octave. I believe it raises it a, well, like. It plays all the high playing. notes, right? Yeah, it plays all the high notes, yeah. Yeah, it does raise the pitch. <laughs> it does, but not the octave, though. No. Um, one of the options was to get uh, more intonation, and it pained me to, <laughs> to oh, read dear. more intonation. <laughs> more <So>. intonation. <laughs> Oh, dear. Next question. <laughs> okay, Hunter, you ready? Here we go. What is this note? What is this note? This looks like an E. That is correct. What is Yay. This? What is this note? That looks like a D. That is correct. What is this note? Looks like a C. That is also correct. And what is this note? Looks like a G. And finally, what is this note? That looks like an F. That is absolutely <laughs> correct, my friend. Mary, take it away. All right. True or false? A clarinet has valves. Clarinet has valves. That would be, I hope, false. A very false question, indeed. So uh, the clarinet was invented in which of the following places? Todd's house, New York, Artesia, New Mexico, or Nuremberg, Germany? Nuremberg, Germany? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> there, there are a lot of clarinets, but which one is the biggest? Uh, biggest? I mean, of the normal ones, bass clarinet? Yes, bass clarinet. You can read the mail right. number if you want you to read the, the answers. All right. Um, uh, one of them was a basset clarinet, um, which is smaller, but um, there's also like a big like contrabass clarinets too. So I was <laughs> right, like, that's only I, yeah. bass clarinet. <laughs> um, and then finally, how many holes are there on the clarinet? Right, that's what I was thinking. Nine, 10, 11, or 16? Holes on the clarinet. Uh, are we talking about buttons or just like holes in general? Because there are keys that cover holes. Um, let's say um, like holes in general. Holes in general. I'll say 16. Um, the answer is 11, but it might just be talking about, like, the open holes. Right, because it's one, you know, three. Uh, well, yeah, okay. Maybe. Maybe. That could be. Because then it would be one, two. I'm not four, certain. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, I guess it could be 11. Yeah. I was thinking even the ones up top that are covered by the keys but i don't know yeah, maybe it's just the main okay well there you go there we go look <laughs> at that flying colors my friend congratulations
Uh, always lovely to Thank have you here, my friend. You're, you're welcome back anytime. No, I'm kidding. Always- <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. Uh, Mary, thank yeah. you for being a great co-host today. Thank you um, Do you have any closing words for us as we close this podcast? Well, thank you, Hunter. Um, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again. And uh, just to, to hear you talk about teaching um, for a little bit, uh, it's a passion of mine. So I'm always mm-hmm. fascinated to hear what people think of like our side of the glass. But um, we'll see you next time. And uh, this is John Remkinas, and I'm Mary Haddix. Keep listening to what you love. Thank you so much, Hunter. And thank you so much, Mary, for being here with such a great host today at Music Speaks. And uh, we'll see you next time. My name is Sean Remkunas. And I am Mary Haddix. Keep listening to what you love.